Retro Hangover is supported via Patreon by listeners like you. We do especially like to thank patrons Lyle McCarns, Ashton Ruby, Randall Quiggle, Tony G, Stussel Smash the Milkman, Katie Quigg, Paul Romalo, Raging Demon, JC, Megan Caruso, Mass Keaton, Andrew Laguori, Ozzy Garcia, The Retro Vixen, Adam from The Good, The Bad, and The Backlog, Thunderdome Gaming Society, Disc Chimera, Jenny E, Rick Firestone, Parallax Puddles, Keith Gasper, Dave Jackson, Eric Guess, Kayla Jackson, Nomad from the Retro Wildlands Podcast, Ash Events, and Alan Bingham. Your continued engagement and generous donations are deeply appreciated. Open your ears and crack some beers. You are listening to the most recent episode of Retro Hangover. Gamers, welcome to the podcast where we assuredly assume awaiting anglers angling attention alertedly. This is Retro Hangover. I am your co host, Chris Copeland, with, as always, your host, Shane. Pound paddling dick Koski. You know, I don't I don't know if you did this on purpose, but uh your alliteration included Anglin, which is apropos given that the Atari, I'm I'm doing my own alliteration here now. Oh. Has fishing derby. There, the alliteration's gone. Fishing derby, angling, I'll start with A. Yep. I think you're onto something. I think I might be. <laughs> yeah, we are talking about the Atari today, specifically the Atari VCS. Or the 2600 for all you millennials out there, which we are also (laughs) part of. Yeah, so probably most of you. (laughs) Yeah, I don't see the, well, we have some Gen X listeners, but probably not the boomers. But you do bring this up to a lot of boomers, our podcast specifically, as Shane has told me. And actually, Shane, you explain it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting phenomenon because I feel like uh, of all the questions I've been asked whenever I tell somebody that we do a retro game podcast... The the question I get the most somehow is, oh, well, uh, like, like how old, like, like you guys, like, I feel like they're testing me. They're like, well, is it, is it like, is it like really retro? Like how retro? Like, do you guys cover the, the Atari? What about like, like Pong? Like, do you go back that far? Like, as if we don't know what Pong is. Never heard of it. And I'm just like, yeah, I mean, technically, yes. Like we, we can't, we will, we can, we could. <laughs> That'd be a short episode. We haven't, but you know, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> It's it's on the proverbial table, you know, there's a lot of shit to talk about. And, you know, given that we both are, in fact, I guess, elder millennials, I saw somebody refer to it as geriatric millennial today, and I felt myself die a little bit more inside. So that's cool. It's entirely accurate. Yeah. But, you know, given that that's our demographic, you know, truth be told, uh, Atari and like that era, maybe a little bit on the back burner for us because we don't necessarily have as much you know, personal experience. We didn't grow up with it. So Hmm. yeah. To all the boomers out there that are 
definitely listening to this, although I guess with an Atari episode, we may actually <laughs> we may get some. And Willie, you're welcome. We're we're talking about that thing that was cool when you were cool. Yep. Shout out to Willie from the Grand Rapidians Play Video Games podcast. There you go. There it is. We know you play Atari, Willie. And 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 well, we'll get to the we'll get to the other people who have mentioned they played Atari in the past because we have a new segment that we'll get to later. Ooh. that You should definitely stay tuned for. But before we get into the topic du jour, we can't say game. Sorry, Ashton. We are going to talk about, as we are wanted to do, the games that we have been playing lately. So, Shane, have you loaded up anything on your old Atari bitbox through your VHF prong connectors? That is a string of words that no person has said in like 50 years. (laughs) Close. Yeah. Yeah. Give it 40. Okay, 40. Okay, fine. Uh, no, 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 I have not. The The other interesting thing about that is I did actually go into my emulation station setup to be like, you know what, maybe I'll, you know, I'll, I'll poke around at a few BCS games before we do this episode. And I realized that I have zero Atari stuff set up in there at all. So that gives you a good indication of how often I oh, no. play those. But anyway, this is going to be a good episode, folks. Uh, but yeah, no, besides that, what am I even playing? I don't even know. Uh, I'm, I'm really just in a holding pattern right now, honestly, because at the time of recording, Diablo 4 Early Access starts in, what is today? Today is Tuesday. So in like three, well, two and a half-ish days. No. Oh. I'm trying to not get involved in too much. Although I will say I am playing a, a certain Bioware rpg yeah that takes place in space no not that one uh no yeah are, are you using the pc or the, the console i am using the pc and it may be because i'm biased because i've played this game back to front at least twice before but i definitely do not have as big of an issue with the controls as you seem to have <laughs> okay so uh stay tuned for an upcoming episode yeah uh, not 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 the very next one not main episode but soon soon it'll be a tale from our backlog indeed um but besides besides that really just some i've been making use of of my my phone as a mobile gaming device uh, a bit more i picked up one of those backbone controllers a couple weeks back specifically for that and i gotta say i really like it it's it's super comfy and it really does a pretty excellent job of essentially turning your phone into a little handheld gaming console so I've been playing some Guardian Tales the past several days, which I've been really enjoying. It's kind of like a it's inspired by top down Zelda, but it's a bit more action oriented, I guess. Been having fun with that. Um, There's another one like Slumberjack something. I don't remember what it is now. I'd have to look, but it's it's a more traditional platformer. But the, the pixel art's really good and it's got a great sense of humor. So. Um, so yeah, I've just been trying to, I guess, make use of that. Still, still playing some Valheim with a few of my friends online. We we try to do that once a week now. So we are uh, building up our our Viking establishment and trying to take down the the elder gods and usurp their power as you do, yes, as you would. JRPG? Uh, no, no, it's actually oh. a sort of open world survival sandboxy type game but set in viking times but the the difference is and i think i mentioned this before is that it has like an actual goal which is to like 
find these these spots where you summon these elder gods or basically and fight them or elder spirits i suppose they are even even just that that little bit of direction is does like wonders for me as a player because i generally don't like those sort of open world survival games for that exact reason because they always just feel really aimless to me so taking that sort of formula but then wrapping it in this very admittedly simplistic sort of goal actually works really well so so yeah been been having fun uh with that one doing some hunting doing some some building some crafting what about you chris what uh what have you been up to these these past couple weeks i've been playing a lot of a lot of games so i can talk about them mm. so unfortunately i mean even though this, this game kind of ties into games i'm planning on talking about here uh east nine is kind of set on the back burner for a little bit hope to get back to that soon i'm also playing a bioware rpg set in space no not that one <laughs> or maybe that one depending on when you started playing bioware rpgs in space I'm not falling asleep anymore, so that is progress. Hooray. Yeah, I'm I'm traveling to to various planets now, and I I am excited. I assure you. I'm also playing Lufia 2, Rise of the Sinistrals. You may have seen me play this on Twitch, and if you didn't, you can go over to our YouTube channel. You can see me play part of the early part of Lufia 2 there. It's a solid game so far. I don't know if I can if I can completely understand the hype quite yet, uh, I'm I'm starting. I won't even say I'm starting to. It's just it's just kind of I don't want to say it's a basic RPG It's very puzzle inspired. I want to say it borrows a lot. Well, it doesn't borrow it because it's just, you know, typical JRPG stuff. You know, you have your leveling system, but it seems to have a mystery dungeon element to it, like Pokemon Mystery Dungeon or Shiren the Wanderer. More people know the Pokemon one. So like you go into a dungeon when you move around, the monsters there move, but you also have to do puzzles in order to advance into various rooms. It's kind of hit and miss for me. So we'll see how it goes, because I did realize that probably the story is going to pick up at some point because uh, kind of a spoiler here. The beginning to Lufia one is the end to Lufia two. And I realized there is an important character that is not in my party. Uh, at the beginning of Lufia 1, that is in my party in Lufia 2, and uh, I don't know what to think about that quite yet, or how to feel about it. I, I think something's going to happen to this character, and I don't know if I'm going to be sad or not. So, there's that. So, so 2 is a prequel, then? Yes. Gotcha. It's a, yeah, super prequel. So, it's like a game you probably want to play first, maybe. I don't know. I haven't played the original Lufia. I've heard you're not, it's not really worth it. It's like the second one's where it's at, so whatever. I'll find out probably one of these days. But for now, just Lufia 2. All right. Well, there you go. I mean, I guess, especially given that we don't have a guest today, which is it's actually kind of strange now. It is. Yeah, we, we usually have a, a third voice here, but we're just we're back to basics. Although I've, I've heard from some of our more, uh, you know, dedicated listeners that uh, that they enjoy that from time to time. Just having the two yeah, of us nice. here like the old days. It is nice to break it up every once in a while, too. Yeah. But the reason I was bringing that up is because I think we've we've somewhat minimized the waffling, maybe kind of. Ooh, it's not as Belgium. Yeah, yeah. Belgian, not, not Belgium. Yeah. Belgian. It's not as Belgium. <laughs> maybe a little more Poland. I don't. I don't know. I'm college educated. Everybody. I hope you understand that. <laughs> we have degrees. We do. Ah. Uh, anyway, I'm come lady. 
I suppose we should probably talk about uh, what we're what we're here to discuss, which is not a game. We we are doing a uh, console episode, which we haven't done for a little bit, at least. It's been a minute. One of these days, we're going to get around to another like industry profile on a on a figure, but we'll we'll get to that someday. My figure, baby. Today we are talking about the Atari VCS, or perhaps more commonly known as the 2600, the one to give you the brief, maybe not so brief history, is Chris. So Chris, uh, please, please take it away. Of course. In 1972, the video game industry, well, it wasn't really even an industry quite yet. While various laboratories and universities had been experimenting with images on display with Birdie and the Brain in 1950 and Tennis for Two in 1958, but these weren't things that were necessarily available to the public at large. Meanwhile, while arcades existed, the machines people were interacting with weren't images on a screen, but rather electromechanical games. Then, in 1971, Computer Space by Syzygy, owned and operated by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, a game based heavily off a game Bushnell played at the University of Utah Computer Lab called Space War, became the first commercially available video game arcade machine. While not incredibly successful, a year later in 1972, Bushnell and Dabney would formally incorporate their partnership, dubbing it Atari and release a game that would change electronic gaming forever with Pong. It was in the same year that gaming would make its way into living rooms far and wide with the very first home console, the Magnavox Odyssey. Soon after the release of the Odyssey, other electronics companies would attempt to make their own home releases, but mostly to capitalize on the success of Pong. These were called Pog clones and, you guessed it, allowed people to play Pong. Among companies that made these systems were Nintendo and Sega, of all. Then, in 1976, Developer Gerald Jerry Lawson designed individual cartridges that would contain ROMs that could be run by a standalone unit with a microprocessor. In other words, the swappable cartridge. This would apply to the Fair Channel F, a system released in November of 1976. Atari would take notice as they had been trying to move into the home as well, starting with their 1975 Pong console. They had already been laying the foundation of finding a processor in MOS Technologies 6507 chip in October of 1975. Atari would begin to develop their new home device with the vision of playing their arcade releases on it. It would hire people that oversaw the design and release of the Fairchild Channel F with Gene Laundrum for marketing and Douglas Hardy for cartridge design. Around this time, Warner Communications was looking to expand into the gaming market, and Atari was in need of an influx of cash, especially to develop a new console. As such, Warner would end up buying Atari for $28 million in October of 1976, and then followed up by providing $120 million towards development of the burgeoning home console, which at this time was still codenamed Stella. 
That cash flow allowed Atari to speed up development, and by early 1977, they had officially begun prepping the console for release and branding it with the official name being given. The Atari Video Computer System, or VCS for short. On June 4, 1977, at the Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago, the Atari VCS was showcased to the public. The system would be released later that year in September for the price of $199, similar to $983 in 2023 money, and would come with two controllers and the game Combat. Eight additional games would be released at launch, most of which were based on or similar to Atari's arcade releases. These other games would be Air Sea Battle, Basic Math, Blackjack, Indy 500, Starship, Street Racer, Surround, and Video Olympics. In the three remaining months, the VCS was a minor hit selling between 350 and 400,000 units. However, the next two years would fall below expectations and estimates. In all of 1978, Atari only moved 550,000 units out of the 800,000 they manufactured. 1979 would fare better, with 1 million units sold, but Mattel and Magnavox would come out with more powerful hardware to compete with the Intellivision and Odyssey 2. Fortunately for Atari, they were able to negotiate with Taito in order to develop the first licensed arcade conversion for a home console, the 1978 arcade smash hit Space Invaders. Sales would double for 1980 and then double again in 1981 and 1982. By the end of 1982, Atari had moved 10 million consoles in the United States and saw the release of another popular arcade conversion with Pac-Man. While Pac-Man is now considered a disappointment compared to its arcade release, still managed to sell 8 million copies and propel the VCS, now renamed the D2600, to over 12 million units in the US alone. However, by 1983, the North American gaming market had infamously begun to collapse. Atari failed to meet expectations, causing investors to pull out of gaming, especially with the failure of the 5200, the 2600's successor. There are many reasons that are believed to be the cause of this, but one of the most prevailing theories was that Atari lacked sufficient quality control over releases on their console, in addition to a flood of competition which included third-party clone consoles, resulting in market oversaturation. Atari, with the exception of their arcade division, would be sold to Jack Tremiel in 1984 for roughly $240 million. This sale resulted in the almost immediate halt of 2600 development. While Atari would attempt to enter the market again by 1986 with a redesigned 2600 and a backwards-compatible 7800, Nintendo had established itself as the industry juggernaut, leaving the now woefully underpowered console well in the past. All in all, the first major successful console managed to sell 20 million units worldwide, more than the Wii U, and have games officially released until 1990 while being officially discontinued on January 1st, 1992. And that is your brief history of the Atari VCS. All right, thank you very much, Chris, for that brief history. 
man, it is, uh, it is going to be really easy for us to just slip into talking perhaps more about Atari itself and less about the console because that in and of itself is a fucking wild story. Yeah. Maybe that's a story for another episode. <laughs> I just want everyone to know too. There's a lot of history that did not go into the brief history. The brief history was truly a brief one. There's no way we could have covered everything. There's going to be people that we, we didn't name and developments that, that we didn't mention, like how Atari was going to go with Motorola first in order to form the console. Yeah. Like there's a huge rabbit hole that I'm sure that like, if you just want the entire history of the console, you, you could probably find it on YouTube. We're just here to kind of talk about what we think of the console as a whole. Yeah. But we hope we gave you some good information as, as we usually do. Well, I mean that, yeah, hopefully, I mean, like, like I've said before, you know, it's, uh, don't, don't say you'd ever learned anything from the retro hangover podcast. <laughs> we try to be entertaining. <laughs> so we'll kick this off just like we do with most of our games. And I have to ask you, Shane, yes. what's your personal experience with the Atari VCS 2600, whatever you want to call it? Oh man. Uh, so my experience with the 2600 is that it came well before my time. <laughs> I always, I always viewed the, the 2600 because I, I mean, I'm sure some people probably cared, but I, I didn't give a shit about anything after the 2600 anyway, but like, sorry, the eight Jaguar fans out there. <laughs> it, it always seemed to me like this strange curiosity it was like a uh it felt like a novelty in a way because you know growing up as somebody who had the super nintendo and the n64 as like really the two main consoles that defined like my childhood that was already far and beyond technically speaking like anything that the 2600 had done and so to go back to it, I think novelty is really the best way that I can describe it, because that's really what it felt like to me, because at the time playing something like, you know, Missile Command or what was what was the name of that racing game that was on there, like en Enduro or something like that? They may have had a racing game called Enduro, but I think Pole Position was on there, like a very rudimentary version of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But th there's that one. I think it's Enduro. I don't know. I have to look it up. I'm sure somebody can correct me. But at any rate, if you look at that game and the way that it obviously is calculating the road that you're driving down in that, you know, sort of front facing fashion. It's definitely doing some like randomized math to like kind of make that work. And that's the same thing that I could do on my TI-83 calculator, you know? So like I was playing games that were roughly equivalent to Atari 2600 games on a calculator. Oh, okay. Chris just posted it up for me. So I was right. It is called Enduro. So to like go back and look at it as like a full fledged console, it was always kind of like, oh, well, that's uh neat, I guess. And I could never play any 2600 game for maybe more than, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes tops. And then I'd be like, all right, well, I got the gist of this and it just didn't mm -hmm. hold my interest. And I, I don't even think that that's a that, that's not an indictment against the console whatsoever. If anything, it's more of just a commentary on me and the environment that I grew up in and what I had, like I was already used to super Mario world. Like how was I going to be engrossed in, like I said, fucking space invaders. Right. So 
Right. That really sort of encapsulates a lot of my experience with the 2600. I mean, frankly, the most experience I think I've had with it personally is not even a legit 2600, but one of the, you know, probably several sort of plug and play, you know, 50 games in one Atari consoles, I say in air quotes that you could buy, you know, uh, at a department store for like 40 bucks or, or whatever. And it comes with all the games pre-installed and everything. Um, I actually had one of those for a while. I think I, I might, I might've, I might've re-gifted that to, to my parents one Christmas. Cause I was like, you, you guys are old. You like this stuff. Yeah. Part of that was because I knew that my dad liked centipede and I knew that that was on there. So, but anyway, mm. that's kind of it. I don't know. What about you? Like, did you, did you have more of like a, a real personal experience with the, the VCS? Oh yeah. hundred percent. Well, great. Grandpa, tell me all about it. <laughs> so as I think I've mentioned on the show before, so I'll bring it up again. Every New Year's Eve, we would go up to Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, and we have like little New Year party. And what I'd be doing at these New Year's party was essentially just playing video games with all the kids that were there. Because, of course, we couldn't get drunk because uh, we were too young. You know, it is what it is. Too bad. Say that half jokingly. <laughs> why did I even bring that up? Kids shouldn't drink. Don't feed your kids <laughs> alcohol. It's wrong. Especially in the womb. Well, that's your choice. Anyway, why am I getting off track here? So we would go up and we would play. They would have an Atari. Like they would still have a Nintendo. They would have a Super Nintendo. But, you know, we went up there in the days before the Super Nintendo came out. So that was one of the options. They had an Atari 2600 VCS hooked up. And, you know, we would play games on it. Like we would play Space Invaders. We would play Donkey Kong. That was another one. I think another one was uh, Defender. I think we definitely played Pac-Man as well. So like all the big games that you think of when you hear of the Atari, I think I've even tried E.T. if my memory serves me correctly. But uh, yeah, we would we would play the hell out of that Atari. We just keep on rotating that controller. Remember, it's like small little corner room you know, carpeted with the lazy boy in the corner a refrigerator with uh, all these Coke memorabilia with Santa all over it. I don't know if it was seasonal or there's always had it like that down there. And then the other room, there's a ping pong table, like a very, very. 80s maybe late 70s inspired atmosphere and yeah we would we would play the shit out of that atari man i never had an atari in the house there there was never really any reason for it because i mean i already had an nes the console came out before my time you know just pretty much ceased to exist in 1983 so i'm assuming that they had their console before 1983 the their kids were older than me uh so that would make sense if they're trying to get a console for their kids or maybe they were just interested in tech i don't know just never came up when we went to these parties but and my dad was super interested in tech and i you know i don't know why he never picked it up because that's supposedly the reason he got me in nes and christmas of 1989 i don't know why i never had one but my neighbor did when i was five in 1990 we moved locations and my neighbor who i was going to preschool with and, you know, a lot through my elementary school with all the way through high school, like we were really good friends through all that time. He had an Atari and I would go over there and occasionally we'd play Atari, too. In fact, we'd we'd make a game out of it. We'd take the Atari controller and we put it in the Sega Genesis because they're both nine pin connectors and we'd play Mortal Kombat with each other. And we'd see who would win playing with the original Atari joysticks and the single <laughs> button. And uh, that yeah, actually it was a works. great time, man. It does. Yeah. That- and you can use a Sega Genesis controller on the Atari as well. That's crazy. It is. So I, I feel like the yeah. the most important question here is the the carpeting that you mentioned at that house. Yeah. Was it shag carpet? 
I don't fucking remember. Probably should be. Well, it shouldn't be because we're all kids in there, Shane. Get your head out of the fucking gutter. What are you talking about? I'm just talking about <laughs> some nice shag carpet. <laughs> it was it was comfortable, man. You could lay down on it. Yeah, it was a good time. All right. I don't know why it'd be a good time. You're sleeping. But yeah, playing the game was a good time at the carpet. OK, well, you clearly had way more <laughs> experience with this than I did. But that's but that's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we have that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I I don't want to say I loved it. It's just whenever I played it, I had a pretty good time. Uh, Getting it to work was always son of a bitch, especially when the years went by and TVs improved, because I think that's where I learned how to hook it up via the the VHF prongs. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen them. Uh, Yeah, I I have. Yeah. In case you don't know, because a lot of people don't, I would even say our age. There used to be these little switch boxes. Now, the Atari itself has a has like a prong it doesn't look like an av cable like for a composite or or a component you know that you put in one of your video signals except this cable contains all of your video signal and audios like audio and video signal it contains it all in one thing and so what you're supposed to do is because this won't plug in directly to your tv tvs were never meant to take the signal you're supposed to plug this into a switch box and so the switch box would also have another input for your antenna that came in from the outside that you'd use to watch over the air uh, TV channels over the radio. And so you'd plug your Atari into one side, you'd plug the antenna into the other side and have a switch for TV and game. Now there'd be two output switches. One would be your coax, which, you know, we still have to this day, more or less. Uh, It's gone out in terms of video games. Like no one uses that shit for video games. Like it's HDMI all the way. Like you take that coax cable and you could plug it in if that's the way that your TV took it. If your TV didn't have coax, like it was super old, and it didn't have coax. There's these prongs. They look like little pitchforks. And there'd be two, there'd be two screws on the back of the TV. You'd have to unscrew it. And you'd have to put each prong into each one of those screws and, and then screw it down so the prongs stayed up against the TV. So they're like little hooks in there. Yeah. And those are called your VHS interface. The picture quality, I'm sure, looked like shit. But when, you know, it's not when you don't have much else to look at. We probably didn't care. I don't remember caring like, wow, this is totally not SCART. Where's my component? Why is this not running at 60 frames per second in 1080p or glorious 4K? Like, no, it wasn't. It wasn't that way at all. Well, I think the the first thing that actually comes to mind for me on that is just how like wildly dangerous that sounds. But like, I know it's it's not really. But when you, right. when you just think about that, you're like, yes, take these two bare metal prongs and like hook them to these two bare metal screws on the back of these electronic devices. Yeah. 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 Perfectly normal. Totally fine. Yeah. And you you would do it as like eight, eight years old, seven, eight years old. Yeah. Well, younger than that. Yeah. I mean, you know, whatever. Cars didn't have seatbelts back then. It was a different time. Different time. I mean, you couldn't <laughs> knock over the TV back then either if you were seven or eight years old because the TV weighed like 500 pounds. So I, I, I was going to say, yeah, nobody worried <laughs> about whether the TV broke and they were worried about whether you'd get killed. Yeah, I think it would crush you. <laughs> and the economy is good enough. Ah, he died. We'll just have another one. <laughs> ah, the, the, the good old days, <laughs> the good old days. Get me another beer. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> But I guess uh, we should get into some of the games here and just what what we think about the games overall, Shane. Yeah. So I'd like to I'd like to ask you, like you, you did mention some of them. You did mention Centipede. Your dad more liking Centipede. Mm-hmm. Have you happened to have the 
what's the word for it? The privilege for playing some of these old games and what do you think about them? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I won't say that they're necessarily like I'm not going to keep it to like exclusives or whatever the fuck, because I nobody's got time for that. And anyway, a lot of that was sort of cross platform with arcade, whatever, whatever. So I will say that I feel like I kind of got shafted a little bit because in sort of prepping for this episode, I was looking a little bit more in depth into the the 2600 library and there's seems like there's actually some pretty decent titles in there that I never knew existed. My exposure to it was really a lot of the sort of just typical ones that I think a lot of people would expect, you know, although I did I did play some, you know, some Qbert partially because I think that was one of the arcade machines that one of the places that I went to when I was a kid had. So there was just something I recognized. I did play Missile Command, even though, uh, truth be told, I've never actually really liked Missile Command all that much. Not with the joystick. No, no, no. I mean, if you're playing with the roller ball, that's like a different story. Gotta have a trackball. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I don't know. The trackball definitely, definitely helps, but I guess I just never, I never really was a huge fan of the mechanics behind Missile Command. Like, I can appreciate the, the strategy of trying to place your your missiles at the right spot so that the explosion will take out the the missiles falling down or whatever. But it just, I don't know, never a huge fan of that. But at any rate, yeah, let's see. What are the other ones that kind of stood out to me? I mean, obviously centipede, we mentioned that breakout, everybody's played breakout. I think an interesting one actually was Solaris. Hmm. Yeah. And the cool thing about that is, well, originally it was supposed to be based on last Starfighter, but that didn't happen. Oh, yeah, that game looks phenomenal. I just looked it up and now I know what you're talking about. It's a beautiful game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard as fuck. But like even today, I think it looks really cool. Like the the what they did with the limited, you know, technology and color palette that they had. It was very clear that they had a, a, an artistic sort of vision to it because they really did make use of it in a way that still makes the game look really good today for for what it is. And I mean, the, the other part of it is just like the sort of space combat sim nature of it mm-hmm. was not something that was super common. This was like Star Fox before Star Fox in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I mean, Solaris, I think, was a later effort as well, because you mm-hmm. were definitely not seeing anything that looked like Solaris within the first couple of years that the Atari was out. No, you were seeing. Yeah. More of your really basic you know, like combat or boxing or. Just something very, very rudimentary, like the amount of effort that went in putting Solaris together is is insane. And I know there's like there's been homebrew that's come out like the Halo D-Make. Yes. 2600 D-Make. Yeah. Which actually looks and plays really fucking good. (laughs) What you can get out of the 2600, considering that it came out in 1977. Remember, this is six years before the Famicom came out Mm -hmm. in Japan, eight years before that the NES came out in the United States. And granted, yes, this was a damn near $1,000 investment in today's money. Yeah. So you do. Yeah. That price tag is crazy. Well, you as a family unit and rightfully so should be thinking that this system is going to wow you. Right. And so there should be a little bit of lasting power. I mean, obviously, no, it's not as powerful as the NES slash Famicom or as powerful as like the ColecoVision, which came a little bit later and ended up being a competitor. Or even the Intellivision, it's it's not as powerful as any of those. But what it does do 
very well is just have the ability to make developers do something simplistic. I think that's what I see out of the Atari 2600 is like when it tries to get too cute with its arcade counterparts, it it kind of it kind of fails a little bit. So like Mm. Donkey Kong's a bad version of it. Pac-Man is a bad version. But then you have games that a lot of people love to talk about, like Yars Revenge, which I think is an Atari exclusive. Mm -hmm. River Raid, which uh, started on the Atari 2600. Defender actually came over and was a very good uh, conversion, as was uh, Space Invaders. And I don't think anyone, anyone should discredit Pitfall. I think Pitfall is actually a very big milestone when it comes to gaming, when you consider... You know what platforming is and and how it led up to what Mario Brothers eventually became, you know, refining it and getting it down to science and in the Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers case. Like there's there's a lot of potential here. And I think it was more powerful. You might have seen developers try to do something more graphically cute uh, as the system, you know, kind of got long in the tooth moving into 80, 81, 82. Mm -hmm. But uh, you did see a lot of big efforts. You even saw like uh, what's what's the game that had the Easter egg in it? Ready Player One. Was that Adventure? possibly i'm gonna look like an asshole here but you had games that were were more fleshed out like adventure like haunted house like et uh like raiders of the lost ark so like they weren't all these arcade sims which i do think is still the strength of the atari 2600 but what you said earlier shane as well uh which is a great point is like you you play it for 15 minutes you get tired of it and you move on you say that's like a fault of you. I actually think the games were kind of designed not necessarily to do that, but like if it could keep you occupied for 15 to 20 minutes, then it achieved its goal because that was just kind of what gaming was when at least I was a kid. Like you play a video game for a little while, you turn it off and go back outside like that was just more of the mantra of the era. Yeah, I mean, to, to some extent, I think you're right, especially with the, you know, just arcade conversions that. That makes a lot of sense, but there, there are some titles on the VCS that I, I got the sense you, they wanted you to put more time into it. But part of it was also the other part of it is, is they're very obtuse when you start to stray away from the, the more, you know, straightforward arcade port style games of just like the, you shoot the things with your spaceship or what have you. Things get a little bit more esoteric, like you were talking about, you know, Haunted House or uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and things like that, which are trying to be these like adventure games uh-huh. and well, trying might be a little reductive. They are adventure games, but with the the limited capability of the console and also being someone that was kind of going backwards, you know, from something like a Super Nintendo and, you know, early Windows PCs and things like that. It was difficult for me to really get invested in a, a longer form game like that on on a console like the VCS, just because, frankly, part of it's the graphics. Like it was just like it's really hard to get immersed in something when Indiana Jones is a stick with a hat. You know, <laughs> the other part of it is just because it was like very obtuse and obscure. If you didn't read the instruction manuals beforehand and get this like you know preamble to like this is how you're supposed to play this game and this is what all this shit actually means it's really difficult to just sort of like go into one of these games cold and get a good experience out of it i think because like i tried to do that with haunted house because i was just like oh this seems like this would be cool i bet it's a pretty straightforward little thing this should be fun 
and I was just fucking lost like the whole time. Yeah. And you have to remember, this is also the era, too, if you wanted to do something more complicated. Gaming was still so much in its primacy that the difference between what PC gaming was and what console gaming was hadn't really formed its own identity yet. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say they separated because they did separate for the most part, I think, even at this time, because the PC is where you had like the keyboard inputs, like your rogues, your zorks, stuff like that. Right. Whereas the console had more the the graphical presentation. But the idea behind if you're going to get into a more detailed game that you expect people to dive into an instruction manual and read what's going on about it before getting into it, that expectation was probably very much in in that mindset. Mm -hmm. Whereas like when you got to the N64 era, I remember when I opened up Mario 64, the first thing I did was throw that motherfucker in the console and just went vroom. It wasn't about reading the manual. You know, you got to that later. It's still nice to have that manual to like figure out like the, the minutiae of everything. But for the most part, I think even most of us as kids, we took that game out, we slammed it the console. And then if we ran into any problems, then we'd read the manuals. Never the other way around. Exactly. And, and I think that's that that was a big stumbling block for me to really like, I guess, appreciate what some of these games were really doing. Like I said, beyond just the very straightforward ones like, you know, Space Invaders and things like that. Speaking of Space Invaders, I feel like we really ought to mention it's fascinating to me. And this this crosses a little bit into the wider Atari story, but I'm going to keep that separate. But Space Invaders, in a lot of ways, is the reason that the VCS is is what it is or what it yes, what it became. Because prior to that, I mean, I think it was I, th- I want to say the VCS had been out for, I think, like two years ish before Space Invaders happened for the console. And by and large, nobody really gave a shit about the VCS. Like, <laughs> yeah, sales weren't great. I mean, they weren't abysmal, but they weren't fantastic. And it wasn't until Atari was able to secure the, the exclusive license to create the home version of Space Invaders, which in the arcades was just doing fucking gangbusters at that time. That is what really put the 2600 on the map. So you can say what you want about it, because I'll say like, you know, these days, you know, you go back to Space Invaders and you're like, ah, yeah, OK, it's it's that. Like, again, I can play Space Invaders on my TI-83 calculator like right now. But that was fucking critical for the VCS's success, like long term. Oh, Space Invaders. You can't downplay Space Invaders in the slightest. It's easily the biggest arcade release and possibly most important arcade release outside of Pong. Mm -hmm. It really propelled video gaming into the public consciousness. And then after that, of course, being Pac-Man. So like you already have Pong, but. Like, I'm surprised Pong wasn't a launch game for the Atari 2600. I swear to God, there's a version of Pong on the 2600. There has to be. Like, <laughs> I swear I've seen it. I swear I've played it. And, and if I'm Mandela affecting this, I'm sorry. But like, it blows my mind that's not a launch game. It may have been included with combat because there's the game select switch that you have on some of the older ones. The uh, Atari units or most of them for that matter, because like combat comes with like technically 27 games Mm. that it switches between for some reason. And I've never tried that, by the way, for what it's worth. I don't think I've actually ever played combat or tried the game select either. So that that might be where I'm wrong with this. Yeah. Getting Space Invaders, you're 100 percent right. Going to Taito and just how Taito just completely 
was dominating the entire video game market. And you have to think like arcades were a little bit different back then. They were more of the the older teenagers where they they go to smoke, wear their leather jackets, listen to punk music and beat each other up while getting underage booze and getting your kids away from that environment where they might be enticed to do that because the cool kids are the degenerates and they might want to be a cool degenerate, keep them out of the arcades. Now they can be like, you don't have to go and smoke cigarettes at the arcade. You can play Space Invaders or Grandma, <laughs> who is also smoking cigarettes. <laughs> Who's also probably more than the punks at the arcade, probably a lot more drunk, but it was more family friendly, Shane. That's the important part. True. You would you would only get beaten up slightly less. (laughs) Oh, man. But yeah, I mean, so as far as like other other games on the VCS, in, in my experience, I think that covers a lot of it. There are some that I like I said, I think I wish I had experienced earlier like tempest for one just being like one of the first three-dimensional games for a home system is pretty fucking cool i'm actually probably glad i did not play raiders of the lost ark because everything i've seen about that puts it on many people's like hardest games of all time lists partially because of the logic puzzles that are included and the fact that it's actually like a dual joystick game like you use one for movement and one for items so that kind of blew people's minds in that way at that time Mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know man there's another one called demon attack that apparently was subject of a lawsuit because of how closely uh it mimicked certain other uh (laughs) vertical shooters but in and of itself it's actually a pretty pretty solid game yeah there's a lot of stuff that you can go on about the atari it's something that kind of passed us by We do look at some of these games with a lot of admiration. I look at some of them, obviously, with a little bit more nostalgia for other than Shane. By the way, Pac-Man did suck. (laughs) It was bad. None of us liked it. Yeah, like there's a lot of important releases on here. And yeah, they were arcade conversions, but that's what people wanted back then. Even Nintendo did that with the Famicom. So more advanced games, they get those attention. But yeah, it was still primarily an arcade console. And I think that's what kept people on there. Yeah, sort of tangentially related to that, but I, I also just wanted to bring it up because I I, I found it fascinating. Were, were you familiar with the sort of maybe gray area market of tape cassette games for the 2600? I am aware of it. Yeah, I knew nothing about this until I was kind of doing some of the research for this episode today. And mm-hmm. like I said, I found this just totally fascinating. So to keep it somewhat brief, there was the ability to essentially take this third party cassette player. And if you're listening to an episode about the Atari VCS, I hope to God, you know what a cassette player is. If not, <laughs> go Google it, I guess. Cassettes are coming back. Yeah. Yeah. It's like ironically like cool now, I guess. But anyway, there was this cassette player thing that you could basically play games from a cassette. And the way that that worked, is it converted the the data of of said game into a sound signal that was then decoded and turned into something that was playable on the 2600 so not only could you play games that weren't necessarily officially made for the 2600 on this but the adapter and I'm sure that there were several but the one that I saw that um that I learned this about it also had a little bit of hardware inside of it that actually made the 2600 
capable of outputting some better graphics than it would by default. And so, for instance, like there's a cassette version of Frogger that if you do a side by side comparison, the cassette version is like far and away a better looking game because it's capable of rendering better graphics than just your stock 2600. But just the idea that somebody figured out that you could record these games on an audio cassette, turn the data into an audio wave, and then hook that into a 2600 and it would be a playable game is just, it's so fascinating to me that like that actually works. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all a magnetic drive. Yeah. 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 I mean, they did it for uh, the Commodore as well. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of like little fun things that the Atari is somewhat known for. It has... The first example of having a wireless controller, which was over RF waves instead of IR. And it worked to a degree, uh, from what <laughs> I understand. I, I never tried it. From what I understand, like that, because you didn't have to point it at the console, they had some advantages over IR. Mm -hmm. But some disadvantages were like if people drove by your house at the same radio frequency, you lost the capability to use it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of finicky. Some other cool things that isn't necessarily about the 2600 per se. It's just all of like the the Wild West nature of what was going on back then. Mm. If you have a ColecoVision, there's something that you can get called Module 1 that can attach to your ColecoVision. And now you can play Atari games. And Atari tried suing them because obviously they didn't want people to get a Coleco to play Atari games on. And they ultimately ended up losing, from what I understand. So you could play with Module 1 on your ColecoVision Atari games. Not to mention hmm. there's like all sorts of various clone consoles. Oh, yeah. That came out. So like you had the telegames, like uh, uh, the Gemini, which all played Atari. They just came out with just different names for these consoles uh, that that played Atari games. And I'm not sure I'm not entirely sure of their affiliation with Atari, whether or not they were licensed or whether or not they were allowed or the branding was just through various outlets, because I think uh, the, the telegames was exclusive through Sears. Yeah, which it again, was. Google it. Yeah, well, so the thing, dude, oh, you uh, again, this this starts to dovetail into the larger Atari story. But how Atari survived for as long as it did is a f nothing short of a fucking miracle. Like the reason that that Sears exclusive version of the Atari 2600 even exists is because Atari had to go to Sears. Uh, eventually they shopped it around, but eventually they got to Sears to basically give them the funding to manufacture the console because Atari themselves did not have enough money to actually continue production. So like that was the deal that they struck that was like, okay, like we literally don't have the money to make this thing. So we're going to strike this deal with Sears and they'll front the money to manufacture these things on the agreement that this is going to be exclusive to their department stores. It's nuts. Everything that's out there. And that, that I mean, yeah, Atari was struggling. I, I don't think a lot of people know that, but Atari was really struggling leading up to the release of the 2600. Like Warner saved their ass in getting that console off the market. And Shane was right, too, when he said earlier before Space Invaders, it wasn't necessarily a flop, but it wasn't setting the world on fire. Mm -hmm. Like people didn't really care. People just didn't understand video games yet conceptually, which is a different topic, because when you really think about it in terms of video games being accepted as a media as a whole, you could argue didn't happen until about 20 years ago, let alone, you know, 45. So just acknowledging the fact that, you know, they were able to move anything back then and how strapped for cash they were, because, again, like 
the arcade market, if you didn't have the arcade hit, I don't think you were making a ton of money. Like if you didn't have a Space Invaders, if you didn't have a Pac-Man, what were you really doing? And that's where everyone wanted to go to. That was like there's there's tons of games that are probably that came out around that time that we don't have a ton of information on, especially if you're Atari. Yeah, you were the one of the arcade leaders. You were probably making money, but it, obviously it wasn't hand over fist and it definitely wasn't enough to get a console out. No, no. And, you know, we in a well, not really in a way like we we can thank the 2600 for the creation of Activision for what that's worth. <laughs> oh, before Activision became what they are today. Yeah, yeah. Because there were there were a number of, of folks that were working at Atari during this era that kind of broke off and wanted to do their own thing and so they formed activision with the sole purpose of basically making 2600 games better than atari could themselves so that is why you actually end up with activision eventually almost owning the entire worthwhile 2600 library like most of Mm -hmm. the games that people will call out as you know essentials pitfall yeah yeah are activision titles you know what the irony of all of it was? It was they left because of a labor dispute. They didn't feel like they were being treated fairly. <laughs> huh. That doesn't sound familiar at all. Oh, how the turntables. I would love to do a deep dive on that someday. I'm not saying I will, Llama. Don't audit me. I'm just saying it would be it'd be interesting to do that. Now you 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 put it out there now. So there it is. I'm not, no guarantees on that. I'm just saying it'd be interesting to do. One last thing that I did want to touch on is the the controllers for the 2600 i would just like to say iconic as a proud southpaw a proud left-handed person that the 2600 joystick controllers are 100 percent discriminatory because they do not allow for left-handed people to comfortably use the joystick with their left hand because the button is on the left and i just feel like i need to say that that's why they gave you the links, Shane. <laughs> oh, great. Thanks. That's what we wanted all along. The links it can swap between hands. Wow. Great. Yes. It's not ambidextrous. No, it is ambidextrous. That is the word for it. Yes. There it is. But what about the paddle controller where you could play like Kaboom and stuff with? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. It's, it's the there joystick that I take umbrage with because it is specifically designed for a right-handed person. Yeah. Because we dominate the world. I, I mean, technically, yes, you do. But... It's like the scissors debacle. I spent my entire life thinking that it was supposed to hurt my hands to use a pair of scissors until I found a left-handed pair of scissors and realized that, no, I've just been getting shafted for like 30 plus years. Well, I mean, everyone that was with right hand would just use to press the button, but now everyone uses their left hand to like use the directional control, which you'd think would be easy. I don't, I don't know. Don't know. I'm not left-handed. No, don't, don't, no. Don't try to, don't try to soften this. No, I'm taking a hard stance against Atari circa 19, like 72 or whatever. How dare you? You're right. I mean, that, this, that is when they started. Shane, I think it's time to introduce our new section. What do you think? Oh yeah, I think so. I think it's been a minute actually since we've kind of freshened things up. So I'm, I'm excited. So what we are starting here, I don't know what we're officially going to call this in our discord server. I call it a penny for your thoughts, which means you give us the penny and your thoughts. We are going to take the thoughts from our patrons that we have in our discord. So if you want some of your opinions on our upcoming episodes to show up in our shows, just go to our patron for as little as one dollar a month. You can join our Patreon 
which comes with all sorts of special perks. Just head on over there and you can see what those perks are. But one of them is if you're in a discord, you get to voice your opinion on the upcoming topics that we have for you. And we have some here today. And I will kick this off with the thought from Diskaimera, who says the Atari 2600 predates the time I was even born, but I think it still has games that are fun to play in short bursts. Mm. Sometimes a fun game will always be fun, regardless of when it was made. And the 2600 is proof of that. That's fair. I agree with that assessment. Also throwing it out there for consideration. Patron pontifications. Oh, I like that. There you go. Let's get that alliteration in there. <laughs> Good point. Next up, we had Ozzy, who says uh, the 2600 was the first console I played as a kid. Despite it being extremely primitive, it still made an impression. Certainly is an artifact at this point, but especially after going through the Atari 50 collection, it's hard not to appreciate everything that it did for the industry, which is very true. Mm-hmm. Our next pontification is from Ray Ray. And he says, if it wasn't for the 2600, I wouldn't have gotten into video games. Once I was able to flip the score in Space Invaders, holy shit, now I understand a lot. I was hooked. (laughs) We've come a long way since Lines and Dots, but video game history can't be written without the 2600. Here, here. All right. Next up, we have Randall with his uh, succinct thoughts on the 2600. And that is, as someone who never played the 2600, my opinions are solely on its aesthetic, which is awesome. Fucking wood grain, baby. Hell yeah. We need to bring that bring that wood grain back. The Atari Junior, the Atari 2600. That thing looks like butt. I hate the look <laughs> of that fucking thing. It looks awful. Uh, it also anecdotally had like a higher hardware failure rate than the original too. So Ugh. the Vader looks kind of cool, though. Yeah, that one. That one's all right. All right. Next is Mast Keaton, who's auditing us as we speak in that. He says it was the console my grandma owned. I now I'm thinking about smoking cigarettes, drinking whiskey. And <laughs> hopefully that didn't happen to you. Hopefully. So once again, it was the console my grandma owns. I played it there a lot. It makes me happy. Except for E.T. E.T. hurts. Heck, E.T. to Tartarus. Specific location, but mm. I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah. Not Tartarus. Yeah. I mean, it made it to a dump, so I feel like that's close enough. Close. All right. And uh, rounding out our patron pontifications for this episode i guess we're sticking with that for now i don't know i kind of like it let's do it i like it. it's keith the one and only keith and he says the 2600 is just outside of my age bracket and even though i own one and am capable of playing it it's something i particularly don't want to do it does look neat sitting on my shelf though i mean that's yeah. that's a fair assessment i mean honestly that's that's kind of where i was with with the thing as well as you know it's, it's uh it was just it was kind of before my time, but you know, the design of it sure does look neat. And it's funny, Keith, who by the way hosts the main quest podcast, I'm in the same position. I also have a 2600 and I have never hooked it up. <laughs> well, you know, you don't you just don't want to shock yourself with those screws. Yeah, I don't even have the prongs. I have no prongs to hook it into on my TV, and I have a CRT, so <laughs> like they, they went away. Say, I know. That's because TVs don't come with bare ass screws sticking out the back anymore. Yeah. I don't have dials. I think they only come with the dials. I don't have anything that old. That'd be kind of cool, though. No, no, can't do it. No, nope. <sighs> so I guess, Shane, mm. this brings us to the end of this wonderful episode and just a discussion over the Atari VCS. But ultimately, we do have to give this piece of hardware a verdict and whether or not it holds up today. Oof. OK, well, uh, hmm. 
guess I'll, I'll start with this one. Uh, does it hold up? Um, that's tough. I, I'm inclined to say no, just because of how dated it really is compared to what most folks these days are accustomed to. I feel like if you go into it with that understanding and you don't have the nostalgia for it, then it holds up insofar as it is still worth uh, a somewhat short amount of time. You know, you'll, you'll get some enjoyment out of it. I think you need to pick and choose because the 2600 library, especially after the whole Activision thing kind of kicked off a lot of third party development for the console which would honestly a lot of it just ended up being shovelware it became pretty bloated so there's a lot of garbage that you can find on the 2600 but i think if you do just a little bit of legwork and find like a few of those like you know top 20 best arts atari games for the 2600 or whatever and kind of get a sense of what the quality experiences are i do still think that you can get some enjoyment out of it it's it is not by any means a lost cause but don't go into the 2600 expecting something that will suck you in and have you enraptured for hours and hours. Because did that happen when it first came out? Absolutely. There was nothing like it. But now, unless you're reliving your, your childhood through this thing, I don't really see that happening, but can you get a good, like entertaining, you know, 15 to 30 minutes out of it? Yeah, definitely. So that's uh, kind of a long way of saying it, it holds up kind of, <laughs> I think with some very strong caveats, I'm going to just be blunt and say no. Eh, okay. That's fair. I, I understand it has a place in history. I don't want to discount that place, but if you're just trying to play it, first of all, is it coming pre-set up for you? You know, that's that's a some that's a thing to consider. Do you have to uh, do you have to set it up yourself? Can you find controllers that are suitable for it? Do you want the authentic experience? Because I imagine if you're actually going to want to play the console, you're going to want everything as it was. Mm -hmm. You're going to want an original controller. You're going to want the original console. You're going to want to play it on a CRT TV and hooking all those things up together at once just to get a 15 minute experience. That's totally not worth it. There are so many other ways to play Atari 2600 games in today's day and era. You could download and in all of the Atari 26 library for probably less than, I don't know, two megabytes, maybe certainly less than 100. So and that's megabytes with an M. Yeah, not gigabytes. I think it all fit on so, like a floppy disk. Essentially, I would have to imagine Atari 2600 emulation is damn near flawless on any computer, not to mention as as Ozzy mentioned, the Atari 50 collection, which is celebrating 50 years of Atari games, which has a lot of games on there, really good emulation that you should check out if you're into that. That is always available. Uh, just setting it up is too much of a pain in the ass to get a brief amount of enjoyment out of it when there are just just every single other way you can play this. No, it won't fill that that gap if you're looking to relive that nostalgia of what it was like to be a little kid sitting in front of a v CRT TV with dials, maybe even black and white TV for some of you out there, because this still existed when the Atari VCS came out. It had an option, black or white or color on the console itself. So that's how far back we're going. But uh, for almost everybody who's probably listening to this, you didn't have that experience. And there's nothing that you could really do 
to replicate the authenticity of it. So because of that, I'm going to say, no, it doesn't. It's very important and you should respect it. And it's probably better as a whole than every other clone count that any other of its competition that came out around there. Is it better than the Intellivision, the Odyssey 2, the Odyssey, the ColecoVision as a whole? I would say yes, absolutely. But also means none of them are worth going to either. So there you have it. <laughs> well, it's, I guess it, it, I guess we don't need to do episodes <laughs> on those now. <laughs> no, well, we can. I could just tell you again. This has my utmost amount of respect, but it belongs where it is in the past. Find every other way to play the games that are on here. The system itself. It does look dope on a shelf, though. That wood grain is fucking tight. I will say that that is held up. Bring back wood grain, motherfuckers. You cowards. <laughs> I don't even know who I'm yelling at. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's what I, I just need to. I need to get like a, a wood grain, like Nintendo switch or something. Yes. The next switch that comes out. I want an option for wood grain. Real wood. Real wood. That's right. I don't want none of this laminate shit. No, I want. I want real, real wood made in America. I want when my console overheats because it's trying to play a game that was not made for it, that it literally sets itself on fire. It bends and warps and cracks and give you splinters. <laughs> if it's not doing that, is it really aesthetically pleasing? Yeah. No, no. That's a man's console. I want my console to smell like rich mahogany. No, I want it to smell when it overheats. I don't want it to smell like rich mahogany. Yes, you're right, Shane. You are right. Yes. When it overheats, I want it to smell like palm oils. Ooh. <laughs> I thought you were going to say campfire, but no, you're going for that real 80s aesthetic. Uh, Absolutely. That cigarette stank just hanging in that shag carpet. Oh, well, I guess on that note, after we go to Pizza Hut. Yeah. (laughs) Smell of of uh, old pizza and cigarettes. Anyway. uh, Well, cool. So on that note, hey, you know what? If if you're here and you're listening to this. And uh, it happens to be your first time that you've stopped by and you've made it this far, then welcome. Hello. We're, we're glad that you're here. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion. If you uh, would like to check out more of what we do, you can do that and we make it easy for you. All you have to do is go to linktree slash retro hangover. That is L I N K T R dot E E slash retro hangover. And uh, everything it's, it's, it's right there. It's a convenient, little button menu everything you could ever want that is rhp related it's all there for for the taking whether that happens to be this feed itself or perhaps you would like to check out our youtube channel uh where we post uh, video versions of all of these episodes as well as our vods from twitch which chris will fill you in on in just a moment and uh, we've also got our socials there if you want to check out what we post on instagram we've also got other things if you want to support the show in a, in a more concrete fashion and get some sweet bennies out of the deal uh, as a result, then you can head to our Patreon. Uh, and we also have a merch store that has been open for a while now, and it's got some pretty sweet designs in there. So you can pick up some some stuff to uh, clothe your meat suit should you wish to do that as well. Um, we got all the things. So, Chris, what do we do over at Twitch? So, yes, if you head to twitch.tv slash retro hangover at Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time U.S., you can catch us playing a video game of some sort because, hey, what else are you going to be doing at Sunday at 9 p.m.? Getting ready for work? Only losers do that. So stop by the twitch.tv slash retro hangover stream 
where you can communicate with tons of interesting people. By tons, we mean 10, but they are amazing <laughs> and you will have a good time there. We hope to see you either getting spooked with Shane or being confused and angry and afraid with Chris. Well, different kind of afraid, more of like existential threat. But we <laughs> hope to see you there at twitch.tv slash retro hangover. All right. Well, I suppose with all of that being said, until next time, play with your actual these yeah real joysticks <laughs> yeah we did it <laughs> bye everybody shane here with a quick message you know the one rule chris and i have always gone by regarding advertisements is this it has to be something we use and can personally vouch for if you know me you know i love coffee and Bones Coffee Company has been my go-to for home brewing for quite some time now. Their small batch beans come in an impressive variety of flavors like Mint Invaders from Chocolate Space or Electric Unicorn, which I swear tastes exactly like Fruity Pebbles. And the best part, no added sugar or calories involved, just natural flavors infused right into the beans themselves. Build your own sample pack of five four ounce bags to find out which flavors speak to you or jump in head first with full 12 ounce bags. They've even got K-Cups. Step up your homebrew game with Bones Coffee by visiting bit.ly slash RHP Bones. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash R-H-P-B-O-N-E-S.